So Money Episode 1131, Nagin Farsad, comedian, author, and filmmaker. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Every time I spend money on something that's like frivolous, um, I have like a little pang in my heart because I was taught to just be very serious about expenditures and like never treat myself to anything. I'm in for a real treat on the podcast today. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. A treat for me and hopefully for you as well. Nagin Farsad joins us and Nagin and I share a few traits in common, although she is far better at all of those skills. She is a comedian named one of the 53 funniest women by Huffington Post. She is a speaker. Her TED Talk on social justice comedy has been seen by millions. She is an author of How to Make White People Laugh and she she hosts a podcast like I do, but it's a lot funnier, called Fake the Nation, a show that is the comedy about politics without any of the politics about politics. She wrote and directed The Muslims Are Coming on Netflix with Jon Stewart and David Cross, and her latest film, Third Street Blackout, is on Peacock. Nagin and I discuss how she arrived into the world of comedy coming from her previous profession in public policy, growing up Persian, what it taught her about money, and because she has been to Iran a number of times throughout the years, I wanted her to give us some behind the scenes of this beautiful country that we share. Such a delightful interview here. Here we go. Here's Negin Farsad. Negin Farsad, welcome to So Money. Oh my God. Hello. You also gave that like Persian stank on A my little name. Because yeah. <laughs> most people, it's Negin Farsad for those of you who can't uh, comprehend Persian stank. But there it is. Well done. <laughs> my pleasure. And I love it when guests do that for me too. I've had a number of Persian guests stop by the show and and I feel like they always out me a little bit because <laughs> I, I've never introduced myself as Farnoosh. Right. And then when they do it, I, I appreciate it, but then also like there's a there's a part of me that takes me back to the playground growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts. My mom would yell my name, yeah. and my friends would be like, "What's your name?" <laughs> like, and you're just like, "Never you mind." Yeah, yeah. Totally. I don't know who she's talking to. Just ignore her. Just ignore her. Um, but speaking about Persian parents, uh, it's no secret, Nagin, you have a very successful career as a comedian, as a writer, um, working in the creative industry. Not what uh, the traditional hopeful trajectory is for Iranian kids, parents, uh, especially I believe your dad is a doctor and your brother is also a physician. Yeah. yeah I was yeah. reading. So in some ways you're like the outlier. How did it go sharing with your parents, your passion? I don't know how that conversation went. Was there a PowerPoint presentation involved? <laughs> well, it was, it's funny because there was there was three Ivy League degrees that preceded that conversation. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like I went and got, um, you know, I, I, I went to undergrad and then, and, and I think, you know, they sort of knew 
and deep down they knew, right? Because undergrad, I studied um, government. I was a double major in government and theater. And so you could maybe rationalize yourself like, oh, she's just doing theater for fun or whatever, um, which is what I said. You know, even to myself, it's what I said. Um, and then I, went, I, I got a master's degree in African-American studies and a simultaneous master's degree in, in um, you know, in public administration um, at Columbia. And when I was... Um, there I was still doing, I, you know, I was doing stand up. Like it was very, you know, I, other, you know, people would be like, oh, should we, uh, let's form a study group and work on these, you know, projects. I mean, these are like people that had really very, very serious career intentions. Like the entire ministry of Japan would send their people to Columbia to get additional uh, public administration um, wow. education. And then they're there with like a comedian who's like, um, I'm sorry, like that idea of like a study group sounds really adorable, but I have to go to a set downtown. So I'll <laughs> see you guys later, you know? And so I think I always had one foot out the door by the time, you know, and my parents knew that I was performing and stuff like that. I think they were hoping that that would just be a phase I, I grew. I was hoping it would be a phase I outgrew. It's not a profession mm. I would wish on anybody. Um, and uh, and so when it came time to like, well, now I'm really doing this, um, you know, I, I, I think I also, I did it in like a pretty responsible way. I always had work um, and jobs. You know, I was, I was broke, but I was making ends meet barely um, until things got better. So I think also the benefit is, you know, my brother is much older than me. He's 13 years older than me. He's a doctor. Um, and, and he had other aspirations that he didn't follow, you know? And I think maybe for my parents who came as immigrants and, and didn't get to do all the things they wanted to do, they did a lot of things they had to do. Um, I think deep down they were like, yeah, like we're, you know, we wish you weren't a comedian, but go for it. Looking back at your childhood, do you, uh, think that this was always in the cards? Were you a funny kid? Did you love to entertain? Oh my gosh. It's so weird. I think looking back, you would have thought, oh, she's, she is going to go into public policy. You know, she's going to go into politics. Like that was probably more in the cards. Like even, um, you know, I remember in elementary school, like doing, um, little reports on the presidency and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I was like really deeply into it. Um, and I wasn't, I think I was in elementary school. I was like pretty quiet. Um, you know, I wasn't very confident. And in middle, middle school is just like a tragic nightmare for all humanity. Like, I don't, if there's a way uh. to like skip, you know, six, seventh, and eighth grade, yeah. it was horrible. Also, just because like I grew more facial hair than the average oh, like young man um, in it was so devastating middle school. Um, but again, I was like really into, you know, civics and all of the, you know, um, the kind of more political courses and then, um, so I think you would have thought that I would have really gone into that, which I did for a while. And then, um, but I ended up getting a part in, in, in a high school play, um, my very first part. And I wasn't like, uh, I wasn't kitchen wench number one or kitchen wench number two, but I was kitchen wench number three. Um, in Once Upon a Mattress, and it's you know, a musical that makes my heart sing to this day. And and I and I think it, that was when I sort of 
when I blossomed, like when I realized that I could make people laugh, even in a limited role, like Kitchen Wench, little known fact, Kitchen Wench number three is not um, the main character in the show. And, uh, but I could still do it, you know, make people laugh. And it was so intoxicating. And it was so funny. And it really opened up my confidence, I think, as just a person who could talk and, and be heard and be ridiculous and be silly and all that stuff. So I, I think I had like a little bit of a person personality it's not I guess it wasn't a personality change but it was just like a an an like a door opened you know yes you know but I look at your your career now and and although you started in public policy you're still helping the world become a better place through your ability to make people laugh and your first line in your bio on your website is that you are someone who believes you can change the world through jokes and 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 you bring a lot of intelligence to this world of comedy. I first of all, I think that if you to be a successful comedian, you have to be incredibly smart. Would you agree with that? <laughs> um, I would <laughs> try to sound as humble as possible <laughs> in, in answering that. No, I mean, I th- I think I think m- most comedians are tend to be like pretty pretty smart. Yeah, or they they can make connections. You know, there's a so there's something well, not about like their book smart maybe right, but they really understand human. Yeah. human nature right they're noticing things at a different level there's something about their the a, a comedian's ability to notice that i think is like is is unique and i've met some like dumb comedians but i mean um but generally but they still have that i think you know uh little zhuzh of 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 being able to notice and make connections all right. So let's talk about some of the projects that you have going on. Obviously, there's the podcast, Fake the Nation. I just listened to your Thanksgiving special with Judah Freelander talking about the traditions that you didn't keep up with this year. How would you characterize the, the 2020 year, by the way? What's the big joke on 2020? Um, right. That's a really good question. I would say for me, 2020 has been an absolute... I mean, like... Obviously, the pandemic, blah, blah, blah. But what I've come to realize is beyond, if we just want to step outside of that for like a quick It's just second, a sidebar. <laughs> the sidebar of the pandemic um, is I have become so utter. I was always very deeply committed to my neighborhood and to my city. I have become utterly, like insanely committed to New York, to my neighborhood of the East Village, um, to, to just anything New York City. I am like, I'm there. I'm here to support. What are my small businesses doing? What are my restaurants doing? And, you know, and so Thanksgiving, I feel like was a little bit of a reflection of that because um, I spent you know, thanks. I, we didn't cook. We decided to get one of the takeaway Thanksgiving dinners from a local restaurant, a restaurant that's Veselka that's been in this neighborhood for decades. Um, and, and it was like, for me, it was like a reflection of like, Oh, I, I am committed to my neighborhood. I'm committed to supporting mom and pop shops. I'm committed to, to supporting brick and mortar, um, small business. And that's how I'm going to spend my money. And that's how I'm going to spend my Thanksgiving. And like, it was really kind of like a reflection of me, like doubling down. And this is like, I know it kind of sounds dorky or cheesy or whatever, but like it, I feel like this 2020 has made me double down on community. It's made Mm -hmm. me like say hello louder to, to the neighbors who I pass by on the street. I feel like it's made me be just like way more cognizant of 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 
you know, the people I live around and how important they are to me, because sometimes a conversation with a total stranger has gotten me by on a day where I just have not gotten enough human interaction, you know? Now, I was just reading in the paper about a family who moved out of their neighborhood to a different neighborhood because they craved more community interaction. They realized months into the pandemic, they hadn't talked to any of their neighbors. And 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 that, that was um, not just a symptom of the pandemic. It was really just the culture in their neighborhood to kind of keep to themselves. And so people are making choices around where they live based on wanting uh, to connect with humans. I think that that's the real, one of the silver linings to all of this, to your point, you know, we, we feel more accountable to one another and we feel like oh, we just want to go the extra mile for people. Whereas before, maybe we wouldn't have thought about it. As my, I know, I think before we had the luxury of ignoring our surroundings. Yeah. Um, and now we're just steeped in our surroundings all day. And uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like I, I can't, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California and, you know, when I've got, I've, I've gone back home um, twice during this pandemic in a safe way. And, um, and in those times, I've noticed that like being, you know, there are parts of Southern California that feel very lonely. <laughs> you know what I mean, you don't naturally run into a lot of people, um, because of it, the car culture or whatever. Um, and so I, I just, that's part of what kind of made me double down on like being the kind of city dweller that I am. We were talking earlier about your podcast, Fake the Nation. You also have a book, How to Make White People Laugh. And Peacock is airing your film, Third Street Blackout, uh, which is hilarious. I watched the trailer. I can't wait to see the whole film. <laughs> and it's won all these film festival awards. Uh, it's about the uh, post-Sandy blackout in New York City in this area, Third Street I guess is your actual area. Is that, yeah, is that yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was where I was living. I used to live on third street of all these projects, Nagin, and you also, uh, there's so much more to your credit, but what, what would you say is the most, I guess, transformative work that you've put out there or the, the work that just sort of sticks out to you and more definitive of who you are and represents more of like what you want to do in the world? <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, I've done jobs for like, you know, networks that are like, I need 14 poop jokes by 1 p.m. And you're like, <laughs> yes, sir. And like, you know, you're just turning out jokes. Like, I, I think it's it's like very kind of people to think that I do, um, you know, like, quote unquote, transformative work or whatever. Um, but I also do just completely silly stuff that's just pure entertainment. I mean, I think a movie like Third Street Blackhead, it's a romantic comedy at the end of the day. And I love romantic comedies. I grew up on romantic comedies. Um, and there might be, you know, some some larger, like, statements that are that the movie is making um but at the end but there's also just like you know again just some really quotidian jokes that are um mm -hmm. that are coming out of of some of that kind of work um i think you know i think the where the 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 place I love to be in at least um, some of the time is where you're kind of like talking about something very serious, but you're also able to be fun about it. Um, and, you know, I, my, my second movie is, is called the Muslims are coming. And, um, 
you know, when the Muslims are coming, I rounded up a bunch of Muslim American comedians uh, in a nonviolent way. And we went around the country to places like, um, you know, Tennessee and Mississippi and Alabama and Utah and just like places where they love the muzzies. And we did these shows and we called the tour, the Muslims are coming, right? So we attracted all kinds of attention um, for doing those shows in, in, in some of the, in some of these red States. Um, but we, but I think the, the approach was like, we, it, we're, we're not going to go out here and make a movie about the jerks of America, right? Like the idea wasn't like, let's get a bunch of people to be pissed about Muslims, you know, and get them on camera and make fun of them. The idea was let's get a bunch of people to like, just fall in love with Muslims. You know what I mean? And can we, <laughs> and can we be like a conduit for that? Because, you know, the, the funny thing is like, obviously things got worse and, and, and more like institutionally worse for Muslims with stuff like the travel ban. But this, you know, the movie came out in 2014 and when we were making it, it was sort of like the height of, you know, Barack Obama as a Muslim, uh, which I'm not saying he isn't by the way, but, um, but it was like the height of that stuff. It was the ground zero mosque controversy. I mean, and you'd think like so many years after nine 11 that we would have sort of discarded Muslims as like, um, a main group to hate or whatever, but we had it tired of it. And people like, you know, uh, Donald Trump are to blame for that, right? Because he really wanted to keep that in the public sphere. And so we had a lot to reckon with. And I think um, my thing was, oh, they hate Muslims, but they've like never met my mom. Or like, you know what I mean? They, they oh, I get it. Right. They hate Muslims because they just see Muslims. She makes a mean stew. <laughs> She really does. And her tadig is out of this world. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like, oh, I let me let me try and meet them, you know. And and, um, you know, we always joke, like if there could be like a, you know, have a Muslim friend program, we'd be just fine. Because and and then that kind of goes for so many different minority communities. Right? I would so watch that. Like, <laughs> like Ellen, every time you come out. At the beginning, like you have to dance to Persian music. <laughs> exactly. And so we just thought um, that, so that's why that, that's a, a that's a type of kind of comedic intervention that I enjoy that this doesn't mm -hmm. have to be like me, like telling people as if I am a serious social justice brochure about mm -hmm. the struggles of the Muslim American community. <laughs> like, no, like this there's a place and time for that. Yeah, there is definitely a place and time for that. And I think, most people want to keep that time to a minimum. You know what yeah, I mean? And you're In not going to make white people laugh when you do that. No, um, brochures, are, turns out, I've done the research, brochures are very low on the laughter <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of where I like, when, when comedy lives in that space, I really enjoy it. Let's talk about money. I'm, I didn't share this yet. I, I took a stand up comedy class oh a couple gosh. of summers ago. Oh, yeah. I'm official now. Um, I have always just wanted to, I wanted to do it. I think it scared me. And I, sometimes you just got to like do the things that scare you because that's when you feel most alive. And I did it and I didn't fall on my face. I had to perform and it was, you know, I think I... How did it go? It went... I'll send you the YouTube link. Everybody can go on YouTube and check out my one stand-up so comedy, Gotham Comedy Club. Uh, as you would imagine, a lot of uh, Persian mom jokes. 
Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I start thinking about the next sort of chapter of my life and is there a way to parlay or infuse more comedy into my work? Um, and, and, but I, you know, I, I want to, <laughs> I don't want to make pennies. I want to make a lot of money. So tell me, where is the money in comedy? Where is the money in comedy? Oh my God. That's such a good question. Um, I think like, so it's interesting because the the thing that I don't know if listeners know this about comedy is that the range of money is completely absurd. Like if you're talking to someone who, I don't know, runs HR for a company, you can probably guess the range that they're in with some degree of accuracy. Again, I'm talking out of my ass here. I don't know if that's true, but I think, but if from like an outsider who doesn't look at salaries, um, it seems to me that you could probably guess the range. Um, and with comedy, any gig, a gig might look kind of exactly like another gig. And then the rate will just be wildly different. Uh, and then also, I, you know, I remember I'll, I'll, I'll tell you like a little, it's like a celebrity story that involves money, which is that I was at the TED conference and, um, I had given a TED talk. I mean, who hasn't? And I met Ryan Coogler who has, who was just about to release the movie Black Panther. And I wow. didn't know who he was. I was just introduced to him as Ryan, right? Hey, Ryan, I'm Nagin, whatever, you know, hey, like some guy. And um, we're having lunch and we're just, uh, and he was just asking me about comedy and stuff like that. And I had just done a show in New York in which I got paid $11. Um, and, uh, and he was just like, what? <laughs> he was like traumatized by this number. And then, and it's funny, I was like, what are you working on? He was like, oh, um, I'm working on a, a movie called Black Panther. And I was like, oh, and by this point, the trailer was out. People were excited. Like this was something I should have already figured out. And, he's, and I was like, oh, Black Panther, is it a period piece? Because I thought it was a movie. <laughs> about the black Panthers. And he laughed and he's right. like, no, it's, um, it's like, it's for Marvel. And then I was like, what? And I'm thinking, oh and then at first I was like, Marvel is making a small <laughs> independent movie about the black Panthers. Like I just couldn't anyways. And then I was like, Oh no, I'm, I'm like speaking to like, who's going to be one of the most famous directors in America. Um, and then, but anyways, and when he heard that I made $11, um, the previous night doing, doing standup, he literally leans to me and he's like, listen, I've got lunch <laughs> and he paid for Aww. lunch and I'm like, no, it's fine. Like I'm going to be okay. And it's not every gig, but there is an incredible range. And so when you're like in New York city and you're just doing gigs, you're getting $25 or you're hosting, you're maybe getting $50. Um, I, you know, 35, I think pre pandemic sometimes would be a regular spot. So you're not making a ton of money just doing stand up in clubs, stand up in clubs is like, you're working it out and you're, mm -hmm. and, and, and you're, you're getting paid. It's basically covering transport, transportation and like right. a bag of chips, you know? Um, so that's Can you get discovered what, on a stage. Like how does, what's a break? Right. You know? I guess, I mean, and for me, the break, well, you know, I w went into all of this wanting to kind of be an actor, but it became very clear that, that the world of casting didn't want a ton of Iranians on camera. And so I had, I, you know, I had a hard time, um, getting acting jobs, I, which kind of 
forced me into doing more stuff on my own and writing on my own and blah, blah, blah. So that's when I started doing stand up, whatever I made, started making movies. And I think for me, the break was to make my own film and sell the film. Um, and I, you know, like I made a feature, it's called Nerdcore Rising. It ended up premiering at South by Southwest. And this was just me figuring out the film industry um, and getting a distributor, ended up on Netflix. Um, and that's sort of like my, that was a little bit of like my start where then I started getting at more like writing jobs, more directing jobs. I think you could be a comedy writer. Um, it's really hard to break into, but you can get those jobs for shows and start writing. And there's a huge universe of shows. It's not just like, I think we think of like, oh, so did you write for um, Mad Men? You know what I mean? It's like, that's not the only, so there's so many, there's a ton, but, but before you get to Mad Men, there's like, a thousand, you, you know, like more than a thousand, um, hundreds of thousands of garbage shows that you could write for and make some money, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I think that's kind of like a path that some people take. Obviously, a lot of stand-up comedians just like hold down a day job. I was lucky enough that I taught myself to edit and direct. And so I was getting sm small directing jobs, small editing jobs um, so that I could make ends meet. And then eventually I got, I, I, I made, um, the Muslims are coming, which ended up landing me a bunch of agents. I have now like an agent for every function, you know, a commercial agent and an on-camera, like TV agent, um, writing agents, you know, um, and, uh, speaking agents. And I think those, it, it was getting the agents that kind of made the career into something more, um, real that also like I could tell my parents like they didn't need to worry about me financially. No representation I'm, I've learned from friends is 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 considered a, a break in some ways because it is a differentiator and you will probably get more opportunities that way. Yeah, I mean it. It is, and and even uh, you know, and people change their agents and managers and stuff all the time so that they can level up or so that, you know, they can have different kind of power leverage and stuff like that. And I would say, um, I'm someone who has kind of done a bad job of thinking about money or like thinking about how different people can help me get more you know, money. <laughs> I've always just thought about the work and every, and, and the money aspect has been, it's like, it's been a burden or like, it just feels like, ugh. and it's funny because it's so important and I should put more time into it. And I have a kid, I have a family. Like I have, Oh my to, goodness. You know? Yeah. I, I support people on <laughs> this money. So I should be more serious about the number of it, <laughs> the amount. Um, but I, I, and that's something that I've been, that I've struggled with is just as prioritizing that as well. Mm -hmm. How did you learn about money growing up? Is there a memory that captures the, you know, the narrative of how Nagin uh, was introduced to money or like how your parents yeah. spoke about it, related to it? And I don't, I don't know if your parents were like this, but basically my parents are just very textbook immigrant mentality around money, which is that, you know, don't spend any and we're going to be like homeless any, if you look at someone the wrong way, we're going to be homeless. Like if you take a breather for oh. five minutes, we're going to run out of all of our money and it'll be over, you know? And so like I, and it's funny because I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm 
I'm pretty sure I'm sleeping at night in like a pretty nice house, guys. Like, <laughs> can we give it a break? You know, and I saw them start with nothing and then and end up with a nice house. Do you know what I mean? Like I saw that trajectory. It happened mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Um, and I can say very clearly, like as a kid, no, we didn't live in a nice place. But then by the time I was in high school, like, yeah, my parents had a nice house, you know, and, um, and they, they owned a couple of other things. And it was like, you know, they, they really built the American dream and they did it in, and they continue to be extremely fearful now that they will lose everything. Um, and so I've just been taught to be afraid and that every little indulgence is like me work, you know, just squandering money. You know, the, it's funny because it, I think the idea of self-care gets bandied about a lot and, and for some people, it involves like massages and stuff like that that cost money. And I, every time I spend money on something that's like frivolous, um, I have like a little pang in my heart because I was taught to just be very serious about expenditures and like never treat myself to anything. Well, when you do treat yourself, what, what do you like to buy? Well, and, and, to, and for the record, I've done a lot of work on this issue and I do treat myself. I, have, <laughs> I do much better at it than my parents, but I think that needling like fear yeah. still happens in my heart. Um, I am, um, I'm like a clothes person. I really love fashion, uh, and not even necessarily expensive fashion, but just like, l- like voluminous amounts of options fashion. Um, and, and I, uh, I'll, I'll spend money on that. And I also like to spend money on eating out, which yeah. um, it's funny because early days of the pandemic, everyone was like baking bread. And I was like, um, I hate this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but I, yeah. So I feel like tr- travel is an, is another big one. Um, you know, I love, I, I think having grown up um, in a situation where we went to Iran for the summers and going to Iran, you know, for us was like the equivalent of someone else going to Sheboygan. It's just like where the in-laws are, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but it kind of gave me access to this whole other parts of the planet. That's so fascinating. And I think it just like made me want to see more of the globe. Negan, can you share a little story about Iran and just give us some color and texture of Iran? And I think so much of, unfortunately, what we are exposed to about countries like Iran that are on the axis of evil, um, we we only kind of recognize them in the context of, you know, bad political news headlines and terrorism and hostility. And so we forget, like, this is a country like every country with people and value systems and culture. And, uh, and so I would love just maybe a snapshot. Yeah. You know, the, the, I haven't been in a while because once I started doing stand up and it, it was broadcast on a satellite network there, whatever, like there was concerns that I would be on a list or something. So, um, I haven't been back in a while, but the Iran of my youth and, um, you know, and even, even into college, um, is this is again this is going to be con- contrary to everything that people have understood about Iran it's super fun <laughs> you know what I mean it's like really fun <laughs> I know you think Islamic Republic you don't necessarily think fun but Iran is really a good time I mean especially so so if you're like me the, my 
almost my entire family is still there. My parents made it out, but they're, you know, they come from very big families. Most of the, those people are still in Iran. I have one aunt that also made it out. Um, but on the, behind her, there's like, you know, a dozen other aunts, um, and a couple of uncles. So, uh, so my family in Iran is huge. And so this, when I would go to Iran, the social calendar was a pact. And, um, <laughs> and every time I would show up at someone's house, there was, it was a party. Like it was, um, and I'm not saying that the parties are technically legal according to uh, sure. the Islamic Republic laws, but obviously parties happen and the government looks the other way um, in a lot of situations. So, um, but it was just like dancing and music. And I think what's particularly fun too about Iran is that some of the partying, at least the stuff that I was exposed to was very intergenerational. So you're just like on the dance floor with someone's grandmother, you know what I mean? And it is super fun that way. I feel like in, in, in America, we, we, we kind of segregate by age a lot. Um, and in Iran, it's more like a, a people of all ages are in there dancing. Um, and then even, it, but the other thing is like, I mean, you know, we would go to the movies and like within the restrictions of the Islamic Republic, like they're able to make incredible cinema. Um, and the movie going experience is still really fun and chatty and social. It's like very like, loud and people yelling at the scream, you know, it's like, that's the experience you're having going out to cafes, um, is again, it's, it's fun. It's, I, I know that you're wearing, um, the hijab when you're out, uh, and that might seem like a bummer to a lot of people. And I can't say that it was entirely comfortable, but it was, it is, like a country in which the people are vibrant and are having a good time despite the limitations that their government is putting on them. And I, and it's definitely something that doesn't get enough attention. It's like how much fun it can be. Yeah. Thanks for that. And it's true. I uh, think even in America, you walk into any Iranian home on a Saturday night. It's a mehmuni. Yeah. It is. It is go, they're going down with the, the music yes. and the, you know, the food and the adult beverages. And yes. the kids can usually found in the basement playing video games or, or whatever. But it's, I remember my parents wouldn't leave a party until 2 a.m. Yeah, they were like, it was like, it's we were with them too. We would have to just find a place to sleep somewhere in a bedroom and, and then they were they would- like partying. I mean, <laughs> they were like in their 40s or whatever. Right. Partying. And like being responsible. Like they weren't drunk driving home and there right, weren't right, like, right, right, exactly. you know, it wasn't like glow sticks and crazy drugs <laughs> off of, you know, the kitchen counter. It was just, they they truly enjoy, they're, they're outgoing social extroverted people for the most part Iranians, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing is we, we got really like, caught up in it being an Islamic Republic, we somehow, we sometimes forget that I think, again, I don't have real statistics on this, but it, just by observation, it feels like the, you know, a majority of Iranians are pretty secular. So they're not pushing right. a religious agenda on anyone. Like I lived with my grandparents who were practicing Muslims. They were never like, Hey, why don't you also be a practicing Muslim? Like they, there was never the, the proselytizing. I feel like is at a very, um, is at a minimum when it comes to religion among uh, m- my Iranian family members. 
Yeah, same. Although my 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 grandmother on my dad's side at one point tried to convert me. It, it lasted about four minutes. <laughs> my mother interrupted, and that was it. That was it. Right, like it's like the, maybe there's an effort, but it's like the weakest effort. Yeah. I'll make yeah. at least one effort and then, then, it, then it's over. Yeah. Nagin, thank you so much for joining us. I have so much more to ask, but I hope this won't be the last time we'll chat. And I look forward to seeing all the rest that you will put out in the world. Uh, this is no doubt just the beginning in some ways of your impact, your impact to make us all laugh and think at the same time. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And it's so, uh, listeners, utterly rare for two Iranian podcasters <laughs> to, to find each other and be able to do this kind of chat. So <laughs> um, I'm honored. I'm honored to be in that company with you, Nagi, and have a great uh, end of the year. Same to you. Thank you so much. To subscribe to Fake the Nation, Nagin's podcast, go to airwolf.com. Her book, again, is called How to Make White People Laugh. And her website is neginfarsad.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.